Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, there's a little album making its rounds uh, <laughs> that shouldn't be out yet, but yet many people have heard it. <laughs> yeah, this uh, new, the new album is going around on back channels, as they say, and uh, well, we're going to hold off on talking about it. We want to everybody everybody to have a chance to listen to it before we discuss it ourselves and and i think that's the best way to go especially since i really want to hear a, a full res version of it the mp3 that's going around of it is leaves a little bit to be desired so i want to hear hear it in in its full full blessed quality i agree and we're going to give people a chance to hear it as you just said when it comes out officially the release date is November 11th. Our episode is going to come out November 14th, so you can look forward to that. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. And last episode, you had a correction that you had to make, and now I have to make one. In the last episode, while talking about the October 1st, 1978 archive, I mentioned a piece that was written about Heartbreak Hotel in the factory, and I credited Eric Flanagan with that. And unfortunately, I screwed it up. And our good friend Jonathan Pont actually wrote that in the Backstreet's review. So I apologize to Jonathan, who I actually saw for lunch yesterday, and that is my correction for this episode. Hopefully there won't be any corrections in the next episode. Well, they are both indeed wonderful writers and they do a great job. And I think that's one of the reasons that Backstreet's Magazine and now the website has been around for so long is that they have such excellent writers writing the articles and and writing their perspectives on it. So it's actually uh, not that big of a surprise that, that you would confuse them. Well, I have to say two of my favorite episodes that we've done were when we had Charlie, Chris, Jonathan, and Eric on, all four editors of Backstreets. If people haven't heard that yet, should go back and check it out because it really, I think, was a fun listen. Should we turn to our topic tonight? Yeah, let's go ahead. Instead of talking about an album that hasn't even come out yet, let's talk about one that came out uh, 38 years ago, Born in the USA. This is a little album known as Born in the USA, yes, and... This is where everything changed for Bruce. We talked about two episodes ago when we covered Nebraska, how he had started recording at home. He was doing demos. They came into the studio. The story is well known. And there was just so much anticipation for this record at the time. When Nebraska came out 40 years ago, as we were talking about, it was a bit of a surprise to people who really thought that Bruce was going to take that next step and just have a massive rock album. And he did have one. It just, we had to wait till June of 84 for it to be released. And I just remember the coverage on WNEW, Rolling Stone, everyone was waiting for this record to arrive. And incredibly, it it more than lived up to the hype. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, even, it was even Bruce who expected the follow-up to to the river to be a a hard rocker, obviously, as we talked as we talked about it in the Nebraska episode, he worked on those demos at home, intending to take him into the studio to record them with the band. And obviously, things did not work out. But before they made a decision to go to a uh, to release the the demos as as is, they did record a good chunk of, of material that ended up on on this rock album that wouldn't come out for another two years. So it had a long journey to fruition, but uh, it was worth it. Yeah, and and as everyone knows, and we're going to cover this in a separate episode, all the outtakes, because this episode would be like six hours long. 
but Bruce recorded uh, what was the number of songs? 75, 80 songs for this record. And Something like, yeah. there were many alternate paths that they could have released to the one that arrived on June 4th, 1984. And the one thing I'll say before we get into the record song by song, I want to approach this like the first time I heard the record in 1984. As we all know with diehard fans, we get a little jaded. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> so as we're sitting here in 2022 and, and the tour is approaching, and we've heard from some fans who've said this, oh, that we're tired of this record. Forget about all that. We agree and we understand. Do I want to hear Working on the Highway every night in 2023? I don't. But that's not how we want to approach this episode we want to approach this episode for the album as it arrived on that day, June 4th, 1984. And, and I personally remember that day so vividly. Uh, the record world that I had talked about where the clerk talked me out of buying Nebraska figures into my story. I was in high school and I was calling from school. Did the record come in yet? And then my mother picked me up and we ran right over to Record World there on the Miracle Mile and, and the album was there and I bought it on cassette and, and I popped that thing in and it's an over-exaggeration. No. Is it hokey? No. I, this album literally changed my life. And I guess it, it, it changed mine as well, even though I, I don't have any, I didn't buy it on June 4th. I don't think I bought it until December of 85, actually. I was one of those bandwagon fans who, who got caught up in it at the time. I was couple of years. I'm three years younger than you. So uh, kind of do the math on that one. But uh, yeah, it was a song Dancing in the Dark that came out, exploded on radio, even down in the D.C. area. And yeah, I, I wasn't an album buyer at the time. I wasn't like I went to the record store each week to, to see what was new. But I listened to the radio a lot and Dancing in the Dark made quite an impact on me that summer. Something about I want to change my clothes, my hair, my face, something that a lot of junior high schoolers probably would relate to at some point. And yeah, uh, without that, maybe I don't become a Bruce fan. I don't become a huge obsessed fan and I don't end up where I am now. So it's, yeah, changed a lot of lives, Hal, even Bruce's. This album really is going to go down as legendary. Of course, it's not Bruce's only legendary album. I would say Born to Run for sure. And I think Darkness also falls into that category. But for the sheer power, just sort of, pop. You know, Bruce had been a cult artist. Here he became a pop sensation. And now we're going to go through it. Seven singles out of the 12 songs on the record, all of them in the top 10. It just mind boggling when you think about it. Oh, absolutely. Even though I think you could argue that by the time they got to the seventh single of My Hometown, I think anything that had Bruce's name on it was going to go top 10 at the time. I don't think, had they released My Hometown in June of 84 or May of 84, I don't think that was going top 10. But by the time it was released and towards the end of 85, he was on top of the world and anything he touched turned to gold. And fascinating that perhaps one of the most likely songs to have been a hit, No Surrender, was never released as a single. <laughs> that is that is still very surprising. I was thinking about that today in terms of the second single being Cover Me. I just, I, you would have thought No Surrender would have been absolutely perfect to, to come out on 45 and say, say August of, of 84. And, but yeah, it went with Cover Me and, you know, we can't, kind of hard to second guess that, especially when it, when it, when it hit the top 10, as you said. So let's go through it. Of course, the album opens with perhaps Bruce's signature track, I Know Born to Run, but for the masses, 
Born in the USA is the song I think they think of first. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I think the drum beat, the opening drum beat and the synth on that, just in the first second of the album, just to quote Eric Hartman, it announces his presence with authority. <laughs> it comes at you hard and grabs you by the throat. And really, it doesn't let go for uh, I mean, for the whole song. And then it just keeps going for that whole album. And if that's even Bob, Bob Clearmountain's signature sound, I think, is, is the snare on, the, on this album. When I popped that cassette in and, and heard the bombast, I, it was so big and made such an impression. And of course, the riff, uh, which uh, if you read Brian Hyatt's book, uh, which we highly recommend, there are some competing versions of how the riff was come up with. Uh, Roy claims he did it. Uh, <laughs> Max says he doesn't really remember it that way. But whoever came up with the riff, it's just so pure. And what a simple song, I have to say, in in terms of when I started learning guitar, and, and I think of a song like Backstreets. I don't know how many chords are in Backstreets, a lot of them. Born in the USA is two chords, B and E throughout. There's never anything other than B and E. They just captured something that is really sort of uh, larger than life. This track, to me, just registers on a scale that I don't know any of his other tracks do. I think you're right. It, it, it comes in big, as you said, and then it, it stays big. Now, I'm not musically literate in any sense of the word. So I don't know about chords or progression, but I do know that the riff is is iconic, as you said. And there was that, um, I guess, the seminar or, or, or talk that Toby Scott gave earlier this year that, that went viral, at least among us Bruce people, where he, he played some early versions of the song Born in the USA. But what really struck out to me when he was talking was the fact that Bruce's guitar keeps keeps the track together and it's so it's so odd because when he so when he isolated it all i feel like all i'm hearing is is fuzz but but he's right without that it's kind of in the center of the song and it, it does it does it holds everything together and it's it's amazing how he did that the lyrics of the song are just so powerful and of course open to misinterpretation <laughs> at least the chorus is it went well when you Put that kind of riff yeah. with Big the words riff. born in the USA, you're going to get misinterpretation. And perhaps he should have recognized that more. I, I don't know at the time, as, as he has joked, there's a lot of money in misinterpretation. <laughs> but if you listen to the track as it was recorded on, Jan well, not recorded on January 3rd, but a part of the January 3rd, 1982 sessions that became Nebraska. And that's a, a very pure you get the lyrics very clearly version. And, and we know that's what Nebraska was. It was it was a series of tales, as we discussed, that really the, the lyrics were put front and center behind the very sparse instrumentation of the four tracks that they were capable of on the TX. So here, the complete reverse, and it works so well. And... and to this day, I just, when I played the record for this episode and the piano starts and the drum starts at the beginning of this song, it, it just, it gives me goosebumps. And, and maybe part of it is that it takes me back to that day in my youth, June 4th, 1984, when I popped that cassette in for the first time. But there's just something completely magical about it. 
Yes, yes, there is. And I think the what you said about the lyrics being front and center on the Nebraska version of it, if you want to call it that, that he, he did later release on tracks, obviously. He introed it perfectly on, on on Broadway, where he said it was his soldier's was a soldier's ballad or soldier's lament. I forget exactly what he called it, but it was perfect. I guess it is a ballad. Verses tell a story. The chorus is more of claiming your birthright. And he he explained it so well, obviously. And and then he didn't do it uh, full band for, he did it once between 93 and, nine, and 2002. And that was the second night in Barcelona in 99. And after that, on that tour, on the reunion tour, it was acoustic every other night, and and the lyrics were probably the reason he wanted to make sure people got it. I've always felt that when he plays the song with the band, especially in the United States, he looks to protect it. And on the Rising Tour, it followed My City of Ruins and came before Land of Hope and Dreams. It would be very hard to miss the point <laughs> that was being made there. Later on, he would play it after The Wall, again, a perfect pairing, so he does seem to want to make sure that it's presented where even though he's going to play the full band version and it's going to be bombastic, he's saying, listen to this song that comes before and maybe that comes after and understand the context of Born in the USA. And as we know, that's something that got lost in 84, 85, especially in the stadium shows when I don't think most of the crowd understood the nuances of the song, <laughs> but that they... They, they loved it, and that, that too, is important. You can't – every member of an audience is not necessarily going to know every intricacy of every song, and those shows were massive, as we know from listening to the 285 archives that have been released. Well, also, don't forget the fact that he had a huge USA flag <laughs> behind him when, when he sang the song that, that dropped when the song ended. So he was uh, – I don't want to say he was kind of taking advantage of that, but he and but he was. I don't know what he was doing by having the flag uh, there. Uh, except I, just I to think make he it, was reclaiming it, it, reclaiming it from putting a USA flag in, behind you and then singing with your fist in the air. I was born in the USA. How was that reclaiming it? Uh, that seems to, I, that I, seems I, to well, play into the you know the Reagan era uh, nationalism that was going on at the time. I see your point there, and and I just think in his mind. He was putting it out there. I don't know that he viewed the flag like that. Maybe that's how it was perceived. My guess is he felt the flag is not just for one side of the country. I am singing a song and I get to use the flag as well. And the the lyrics of the song, I mean, if you listen to the verses, uh, you should know that the character loves his country, but has some issues with his country. (laughs) And you know, I think that's the lasting impact of the song. Yeah, it is. It's kind of sad about, you know, the guy goes to war and he comes back and he can't even get a job. And, you know, where he was born, he uh, he felt responsibility, or at least he had no choice but to uh, take on the responsibility of fighting for the fighting for his country. And then but then coming back and then not having it honor him. And so that was that was a good chunk of the song right there. And I think we have to acknowledge the uh, the B side when it was finally released as a single as "Shut Out the Light," which was just as probably the most thematic B side in, in in his career. Talking about a Vietnam vet coming back, like the immediacy of him coming back from the war, and then then I think "Born in the USA." The song is seems to take place about ten years later, so it's such a such a great pairing there. <laughs> 
perfection. Uh, just the pairing of Born in the USA and Shut Out the Light. There's nothing more that we need to say about that. And we will talk about the B-sides and the outtakes in a later episode. And let's move on because we could do an episode. We could probably do more than one episode on just Born in the USA. We could definitely, especially the various versions. Yeah, we could definitely do a full hour just on the song itself. So let's let's move yeah. on to track two, Cover Me. And not exactly the uh, most lyrically complex song, but it seems to work. <laughs> this song grew on me over the years. I think I liked it in 84 when I first heard the record. And in recent years, it has grown on me more. It's a fun rocker. And we know there's a dirtier side to the song, I would say, it, with the drop on down and cover me version. They, they elected to put out the version that was recorded first. This was recorded in what, May of 82? Oh, I thought it was rec- recorded even before then. I thought it was, uh, well, let me check it here. I thought it was done. Uh, yeah, no, it's January of 82. So Wow, this song was recorded in January of 82. Yeah, it was. And, you know, this is the one where David Geffen asked Bruce to record a, to write a song for Donna Summer, and he wrote Cover Me. And then Landau said, no, 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 Bruce, you're going to keep this one. You're going to give Donna Summer another song. And then he gave her, he came up with Protection, which he gave to her, in which, in which she released. And Bruce actually, he plays guitar on her, her release track. And, and there is apparently a, a, a version of them duetting on, on, on the song, which we would love to hear. I don't know what kind of legalities they would need to work through, but it needs to come out. But anyway, so he gave her protection. He kept covering me for himself. Uh, it's almost like the uh, those early January 82 sessions were like with Bonds. It was uh, Cover Me and the Lions then and then all the on the line stuff for, for Gary U.S. Bonds. Quite an unusual little little pairing there. It's an interesting song, both in terms of how it's placed on the record and, as you noted, the pick as the second single. Now, it did sort of have a more modern, is that the word we want to use, feel than I think Bruce had presented previously. And maybe that's why they chose it as the second single. What What's your feeling on that? Well, dancing sure was a had a modern feel with the synthesizers and such. And then, yeah, then I guess Cover Me kept that going, even though... It also had a hell of a guitar lick in there. I thought the opening guitar yeah. riff is maybe not riff, but the opening notes are, they are pretty cool. Let's let's be honest here, and it, it worked well. And maybe uh, after after dancing, they just wanted to keep it going, as you said, with a modern feel, but with a lot more guitar than than what dancing had. Looking at it, and, and as we talk about it now, it, it probably made sense for the reasons you're saying with the guitar and the fact that it did have a pop sound but was edgier than dancing and they needed something to follow up that monster first single now that we're talking about it i I think it makes sense yeah it does especially kind of serves as a bridge in some fashion uh between dancing and born usa which i think is a much harder song obviously than than dancing in the dark but it was also an interesting pick because he wasn't playing it every night As, as rich russo said on on our, on our show a couple months ago, we were talking about the August 19th, 84 archive release. He wasn't playing it every night. And you don't release a single that you're not playing in concert. At least that's how I, that's how I viewed it. And so it, for that reason, it's, it's like even Bruce wasn't too sold on it if he wasn't playing it from the get-go starting in late June on the tour. Yeah, I think he probably didn't have the version of the song down that he wanted. Of course, it would become a regular later on, especially 
kicking off the second set when they had more of the remix version. Now, even in his first performances, you did get a little bit of that remix, but of course he fleshed it out a lot more, made it much bigger. And then dancing was also given the remix treatment. So those two songs were paired together. It just seemed like, and when I saw the show, Cover Me was not played and and it had just been released as a single. So that was weird because in the 80s, you played your singles. Exactly. But I'm not sure what you mean by the the remix version in concert i he added the intro that the synthesizer intro and at first off he didn't have patty uh doing you know i forget what she, oh my god i can't, can't believe i don't remember what she said uh nowhere to run to that's it yeah no yeah nowhere, nowhere to, run to run to, to nowhere, to, nowhere to, hide. to hide and then cover me cover me well, cover me by remix i meant that version that i think was influenced by the arthur baker release you, you don't agree with that uh you know, it's been a long time since I've listened to the to the Arthur Baker remixes, and Cover Me was not one I actually – I'd even hear it, I don't think, in 84. I don't think I heard it for years later until I found it at some used record store. But I don't remember the, the long intro that he played in concert being on the remix or the or the outro of it. Let's be honest, he bloated it out like he does to, to, many, to many songs over his career. So uh, when, he, when he pared it down to the three-and-a-half, four-minute rocker, On later tours, I think it became refreshed. But again, we want to talk about the album version, right? (laughs) Yeah, we'll stick with the album version. And and the legacy of that version, this is not, even though it's a major hit for him, I don't think this is an essential Springsteen track, do you? No, I do not. It's not one I hear a lot on any kind of classic rock station or or something, or classic rock from the 80s. I don't don't hear it there. I always hear Dancing and Born in the USA and Pink Cadillac. of all songs. Also, it's kind of weird he didn't do a video for it. Maybe uh, the Dancing in the Dark video is obviously huge, so it's kind of a surprise he didn't do it in retrospect, but at the same time he had just started the tour and they probably just didn't fit into the schedule. Perhaps, and and as we know at the time, I think they were having some issues getting comfortable with the idea of videos. The Palma had done the dancing video, which we'll talk about when the song comes up. The next video would be Born in the USA. We we didn't really talk about that too much with the track, and Let's, probably that's just that's fast. Yeah, very true. Let's kind of leave that one behind. Yeah, less, the less said, the better about that Born in the USA video. All right, so let's go ahead and take a road trip. What do you say, down to Darlington County? Bruce's version of Honky Tonk Women. <laughs> that's true. That didn't come till, of course, the the obvious didn't come till many years later. I didn't th- I didn't hear the, the Honky Tonk Women riff in Darlington for until the reunion tour. So I, I didn't hear it at the time, and I still really don't hear it on the, on this album version of it. This is the E Street Band captured live in the studio, probably at its most fun. And uh, again, when you think about it in 1984, when I listened to Side A of that record on that first day, this was a song that made an impression because it was really a lot of fun. Now, if we're talking about it in 2022, we're going, okay, Dear God, let's hope that doesn't get played, uh, although I'm sure it will. But it's a really fun rocking song. Yes, it is. I to- totally agree with you. I mean, all, all these songs are, are fun rocking songs, let's, let's be honest. And it worked well, and I, I think it works well in the album. It worked well in concert on that tour, and it's just fun. <laughs> Actually, I think it dates back to the Darkness era in terms of, uh, of studio work, but and it's also not that different than than the river rockers like uh, Cadillac Ranch and and I'm a rocker. So 
you know, it pretty much continues that that kind of vein. It's actually more it's more retro for Bruce at the time, especially considering the first two songs on the album were so synthesizer based. And interestingly, it gives a little bit of a softer edge, especially coming out of Cover Me, than you could have had on this record. There's a potential version of this record that we know from the studio logs where Born in the USA was going to be followed by Murder Incorporated, which <laughs> would have left nothing to the imagination and probably would have helped on the Born in the USA misinterpretation and also would have been as hard hitting as you could possibly imagine to open a record. The way in which it went, Born in the USA, Cover Me, Darlington, they took the edge off it, especially with Darlington, I think uh, just a little bit. Perhaps that was intentional because it seems to me this is probably the more commercial version than if they had gone Born in USA, Murder Incorporated. <laughs> well, and then you're looking at that track listing after Murder Incorporated was Downbound Train. So it was really going with a much darker darker field than what we have here of, uh, of USA, Cover Me, Darlington County. So yeah, much lighter, very fun. May not have been the what what people really wanted from Bruce in terms of like the hardcore fans who wanted Bruce to go darker, but he didn't. It was fun, and I think you know that's pretty much it. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Yeah, and the, speaking of darkness, the next track, which is presented sort of fluffy working on the highway, as Brian Hyatt notes, it's it's probably the most subversive track on the record, perhaps one of the most subversive tracks Bruce has ever released because it incorporates the lyrics to a song that he had recorded for potentially for Nebraska, Child Bride, and he gives it a much sweeter package here, so to speak, but yet the words are pretty much the same and <laughs> there's some uncomfortable doings, I think, going on in this song. Well, you know, of all the songs about statutory rape that Bruce has ever written, this is my favorite. Um but yeah, it's it had an interesting journey from 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 the child bride from the Nebraska sessions, and uh, pretty much a very similar song up to up to the last verse, where I think uh, on child bride he actually talks about the, the the narrator of the song being in prison, whereas on this one he's just working on the Charlotte County Road Gang, and it's you're right, it's a little uh, it's a little different, but as uh, as Dave Marsh once pointed out to me, all the the darker songs are always mixed with a uh, with a very happy sounding music, and that's kind of been the history of rock and roll. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a perceptive point by Marsh, and I think he's made a similar point about Cadillac Ranch, if I recall properly. And there is a history of that, and I think that that 
probably if they had released the child bride version, I don't think the song would have registered clearly anywhere near as much as it did here. And obviously here it's smack in the middle of a record that sold something like 30 million <laughs> copies. Well, and then you, you, as you said, you put the, the dancing music basically to it, not dancing in the dark, but just dancing in your living room kind of music and dancing in the, in the arenas and stadiums. And, you know, you don't realize why, why the guy is being arrested and taken back from Florida and, and put on trial. So, yeah, uh, I see Brian's Brian's point. It is kind of subversive there. <laughs> well, I'll say this. When I was 15, I doubt when I was listening on my Sony Walkman in my bedroom and bopping along to working on the highway that I was actually realizing that what was really going on in the song. Well, I got to be honest. I'm, I was the same way. I really didn't get it either until actually a lot later than I should have. But uh, that's the way it goes. Sometimes my critical thinking skills are lacking. but Or at least yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, 15 year olds aren't really known for their <laughs> critical thinking skills. Um, that is know. true. But I think I was even a lot older than that when I finally realized, oh, okay. But Oh, yeah. you, uh, you That's true. You were like 45, right? Like, no, no maybe, maybe 25 or, or 30. But I'm yeah, joking. it was just. Uh, kid. But yeah, it's, you know, he takes this very dark tale and puts it to very upbeat music. And there you have a, a concert favorite. <laughs> Obviously, all the non singles got. got prominence on the reunion tour and this was definitely one of them i remember people on the reunion tour weren't there a couple of people who would show up in hard hats and they were wearing <laughs> the reflective vests yeah yeah a couple of guys did that in jersey in the in summer of in the summer of 99 so yeah that was interesting and then then it was you know it was the wild card slot where was that's where he would play loose ends or uh, or human touch or something and instead you got you know working on the highway <laughs> Whatever, this track itself is a strong song, fits well on the album, not so so well live, you know, uh, 16 years later. Well, the next track, which is dark on the face of it, and I I think most people would understand that, even on the first listen, is one of my personal favorites, and that's Downbound Train. And in Hyatt's book, Roy mentions about how the synth on this track really altered the sound that Bruce had established on on previous records. And and it is the truth that there's a, when I listen to this track, I hear sort of like a mournful, it's in his voice too. There's just a mournfulness to the whole experience and and everything that has happened to this character. And when he winds up back in the house at the very end and he drops to his knees and he hangs his head and he cries. I mean, it's the, the payoff. And I just love this song so much. I don't know what that says about me, <laughs> but it, it really, it sort of pierces the soul, I think. And I forget there, there was a famous critic that attacked this song in a review. Was that Lester Banks? I thought it was Dave Mars actually. The, was it something, really? something clunker Dave, that Mars side to the per- I thought that pretentious was pretentious clunker. It's on side one, by the way. Okay. That inside one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My bad. Yeah. Wait, doesn't I'm on fire inside one? It does, but yeah. But I, yeah, that's, yeah. I, it's I'm, at, towards the end. Yeah. I'm going through from the quote that I remember. I think it was actually Backstreet's had it to one of the trivia contests and they said, you know, who called downbound train the, we said pretentious clunker that Mars side one, something like, something like that. Now, one interesting thing about the song is I remember reading that it was from the Nebraska sessions that, and that it was recorded in an acoustic arrangement. I always thought that would be like really dark and slow and I guess dirgy and I really wanted to hear it. And then when I finally heard it and on the Lost Masters, it was a lot faster than I imagined. And it didn't seem to have, 
it didn't work in anywhere near the same way as 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 the full band version. And I was very surprised by that. Yeah, that also surprised me. I'm just looking here. Downbound Train was also recorded in that first part of 82, right? Um, yes, yes. Well, it was, re- I mean, 82, you mean the Nebraska sessions in, in April of 80, of 82? April, May? I'm talking about the, be- yeah, exactly. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously it was done within the rest of the Nebraska stuff in January of 82, but then it, it didn't go into the into the band uh, sessions until uh, until late late April, early May, which was kind of considered the you know as we said the Electric Nebraska session, sessions. It was also recorded in in eighty three as part of the solo Hollywood Hills sessions. It was actually the only song that got that got all three treatments. So I'm wondering what that one sounds like, and I wonder if it sounds closer to Nebraska than than the Born in the USA album version. There were three separate. There were, you have the Nebraska recordings. You've got all the studio work at the Power Station, and then Bruce also took that trip out west and and recorded songs at his home in the Hollywood Hills. Which, uh, according to the legend, they almost released that the Hollywood Hills solo record w- would have been out after Nebraska and before this rock album came out, I, I think that would have basically sent Sony over the edge. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that it, if there's ever a, a Nebraska USA box set that I think that should be included. Cause to me, that's the musical bridge between the two, if not necessarily in the correct chronological order. And in 2022, when we know Bruce can basically do whatever he wants as it relates to the label, this is pre-born in the USA. <laughs> they wanted this album to come. I don't think there's any question about that. So they went with the Nebraska record, which slowed things down. I, I don't know that they would have tolerated another solo record. <laughs> well, I remember uh, Landau was one of the people who tried to, who wanted to talk Bruce out of this, the Hollywood Hills album. Uh, just the fact that he would have another, a second album without the band and it would leave. It would have been uh, his head scratching to say the least. It really would have confused people because, as I made note of at the start of the episode, the buildup to this record lasted, it really started basically right when Nebraska came out because everyone knew that this recording was going on. It wasn't a secret. They were at the power station as a Rolling Stone would have in their random notes, I think it was called. Basically, in every issue, uh, a little blurb about the Bruce was spotted in New York, this, that, the other thing. There was an anticipation. I don't even know if you can get the same sort of anticipation today. Uh, if you look at someone like a Taylor Swift or whatever, the world is so different. Of course, now everything's on the Internet. I take a look at Only the Strong Survive, which is leaked all over the place. You know, this was different. People got their news through the radio and, and, and through those Rolling Stone blurbs. The world was just such a different place and, and people were really ready for this album. And, and I think that's why it launched. And, and when you mentioned what Landau pushed for, I think they had to have a sense that our audience is, is ready for this. And, and of course, Landau knew at the time, look at what they had already recorded. <laughs> they were sitting on Born in USA, the full band version. They were sitting on Cover Me. They were sitting on much of the album as it was released. Dancing comes later, as, as we all know. But the, the heart of the record was already there. And then Bruce continued to, uh, what, how, what do we, how do we describe what he did for, for two, 
putts around. I mean, just to obsessively record for another two years when they had most of the material already in the can. Well, that was definitely a source of frustration for everyone. I'm sure. I'm sure. But but yeah, by by the time they released Nebraska in, in the fall of of '82, they already had over half an album ready to go. I mean, or at least of the, almost half of the album that would be released in two in two years in the can. And that's not even including stuff like Murder, Inc. and, and Frankie and, and, and My Love Would Not Let You Down and, and a couple others that, that easily could have made the album. And they, they could have released the album and a tremendous rock album in the fall of 82. Could you imagine the people who must have been hearing Born in USA when they had it and people at the label and 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 Landau and and whoever else had heard it, and to know that that track was just sitting there for, <laughs> for two years, two years. Well, I think the weight. Pay, I think the weight paid off, Al. <laughs> that is that much we know. Uh, let's move on to "I'm on Fire," which ends side one on on this record, and this is. Uh, Another track, I think, was a, a bit of a departure for Bruce. I mean, the sound of it is, uh, this album is a little bit darker than I, certainly, I, as we were just saying, I realized the 15, and I think it's darker than the masses realize. You know, if you sit down and really read the lyrics word by word, there's some stuff going on here. I, does it pass the muster of me too? I don't know. <laughs> well, it is a little different in that, but I, I, I like the sound of it. It's That's a departure. I think the songwriting is still pretty much in the vein of, of Nebraska. I mean, he's not telling a story, but it's certainly, I guess it is a story in, in some fashion about how he's on fire and he wants this girl. And yeah, I think Hey Little Girl may, may not pass right now, but uh in May of '82, when it was recorded, I, you know, it was totally fine. And again, this is another one that was in the can uh, at the time Nebraska was released. Yeah, there's a the, an edginess to this. I mean, if you look at the lines, "Tell me now, baby, is he good to you? And can he do to you the things that I do?" That's pretty bold, <laughs> and you could get away with that. Hell, I mean, this is a total side thing, but I just saw that Taylor Swift had her editor video because she used the word "fat" or something like oh, that. God. It's you know, these days you can barely get a. The songwriter can't make a point in the same way the songwriter could make a point in 1984, and I, I think it's very fortunate that that kind of scrutiny wasn't put on these songs, not just Bruce, all of them. I mean, if you go through rock and roll, how many songs, you know, is there, and I'm using air quotes now, is there offensive material? And and this song, I think it works really, really well. And it, and it, it smolders. I also remember somebody trying to describe the song as being um, a continuation of Born in the USA in terms of talking about the Vietnam veteran. The last, the last few lines about... Uh, a knife cutting through the middle of my skull and waking up with the sheet soaking wet. And that was kind of a, a very common symptom of, of post-traumatic yes. stress uh, disorder. So some people made that argument. I'm not really sure I buy it. I think he was just sweaty <laughs> and his head really hurt. Maybe not for yearning, but for something. I also like to point out that the lines you just talked about, uh, tell me now, or hey, hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did he go and leave you all alone? Actually appeared, originally appeared in Spanish eyes, which he, uh, which he, recorded for darkness and didn't release until the promise. So those two lines have been sticking around for a bit. Oh yeah. I, I think it's good that you pointed that out and, and getting to your Vietnam veteran point, I, I can actually see that. And, and I'm not sure I've considered that in the past 
the idea of the man waking up in bed with the sheet soaking wet, which would be a sign of trauma and, and the freight train running through the middle of his head and the, the yearning for human connection, even if it's perhaps presented in a maybe unhealthy way, I, <laughs> that I, I think does describe a, a lot of the troubles that some of these guys had. Now, what do we think? This is not a healthy relationship, right? <laughs> no, not in the slightest, but uh, I guess that's where Bruce was at the time. I mean, uh, he was just gone into therapy for, for some of those issues. So yeah, he wasn't ready for a healthy relationship at that point. The whole little girl thing. Now, if you take it literally, it's clearly problematic, especially in <laughs> it's, 2022. But it's not literal. Come on. Uh, that's that. Well, that I I don't think so. But it, it does beg the question of who exactly sing to, because of course, as we pointed out a couple of songs earlier, there's also uh, perhaps not perhaps there's an inappropriate relationship from working on the highway as well. That's a literal little girl, but you know, have, yeah. have, have, how much ever you referred to a girlfriend or your wife as, "Hey, little girl, come here." Well, who's the daddy? <laughs> well, that's a whole nother thing going on right now in this world of ours, so I don't want to touch that one. All right, well, we'll move on to side two, and side two opens, as I said, with a monster of a song. Hard to believe that it wasn't a single. That is No Surrender, and there's a lot going on in this song. What do you think? Oh, it's a tremendous song. It's a great song, and... I guess it was kind of written as a tribute to Steve Van Zandt. It was written in uh, in, the, in late '83, so after Steve had officially left the band, and this was like the last the last stretch of recording for the album. And it sounds like it was like a tribute to Steve, and the fact, and they were brothers, and uh, and same with Bobby James. So a tremendous song. One of these it was one of the ones that I was kind of disappointed did not get the full band treatment very often on the on the USA tour, but. The acoustic version is just it's just magical, so it worked. Yeah, it's really beautiful, as we said, on the August 19th release. The surprising thing about this one is, well, there was a whole controversy. As we were talking about, Landau dissuaded him from putting out the second solo record. Chuck Plotkin in Brian's book certainly puts himself into the mix as trying to be a voice of reason, Chuck apparently did not like a lot of the songs that were recorded in the second set of sessions for this record. You mean eight, which eight, were, 83? Yeah. Okay. And, and then they recorded No Surrenders after that. So Chuck and the namesake of our show was recorded around that time in like May of 83, None But The Brave. There were, uh, there were a couple of other songs. Chuck did not feel that those songs matched up to what had been recorded in 1982. And, and I guess there was even at one point an acetate that was put together by someone with the songs that Bruce was now considering in 83, which they felt didn't work. And they actually had the acetate pressed to get Bruce to listen to it and hopefully go, yeah, this is not right. <laughs> What was that? The one with Cynthia and them, but the brave follow that dream. What glory days? Yeah. Janie, don't you lose heart rather? Yeah. Something like that. And history would certainly be a lot different. And, and we don't know how much of a role that Chuck really played in the, in the final track listing. He was clearly an important voice, but it's somewhere along the way here. They, Bruce did come back in and record no surrender and Bobby Jean, and and that sort of got the sessions back on track. Now, incredibly, 
apparently Bruce did not want to release No Surrender. I, I don't know how you could hear the song and be the songwriter and not want to release it. But as legend has it, Steve convinced them <laughs> to put the song on the record. Well, I think they'd actually had come up with like a full track listing and they, they were actually not sure whether New Sur- No Surrender was going to fit or not. But luckily it fit right at the start of side two. So it ended, ended up working. It's a great song. And I, I think very important. It's it sort of at the time we know that Bruce was going through some stuff. He, what, You're the one to always to cite this. When did he start the therapy? That was sometime a little bit earlier, right? I thought that was when he traveled cross country uh, sometime in the, was it maybe early 83, uh, where he traveled across country with his friend Maddie and uh, he got to, he got to LA and he just like broke down. So I thought maybe it was right before he, he started those Hollywood Hill sessions. Right. So that tracks with this because thematically, no retreat, no surrender. You're, you're in a mindset where things are maybe not going as well as you want. And they were kind of lost <laughs> uh, as hard as it is to believe that you could be lost when you have this level of material, but that's where he was. And, and this was basically his mission statement, no retreat, no surrender, we're, we're moving forward. And, and as we say, it's just a total mystery. This song was, was never a single. And then it was a mystery. It really was never played live and in the, in the, in the full band arrangement until basically the, uh, the rising tour. So that was, of course, it's been a regular ever since, but at the time and, and during the late eighties, 84, 85, certainly it was like, well, where's let's, let's do a couple of run throughs here every so often, but that only happened at the start of the tour. And, Never appeared again, at least until 99. Well, he clearly didn't think it worked on the Born in the USA tour because it was jettisoned so quickly. <laughs> it's like, what, three performances? Two? Something like that. Two or three, yeah. Yeah. So next up, Bobby Jean, which is a thinly veiled <laughs> memorial to Steve leaving the band. And an important song because of that. It also features, this is one of Clarence's signature moments uh, on this track. Yes, yes, it is, and I, well, I think it pairs so nicely with "No Surrender." It's almost like a little Steve tribute uh, double header, and and yeah, Bobby Jean is actually, I think that's a, I would call it one of Bruce's signature songs at this point, anyway. Uh, at least from, I think it's more of a signature song from this album than than "Cover Me" and even "I'm on Fire." It's one that a lot of fans cite in terms of when they when they miss someone, someone who passed away, or or they just grew grew apart from, but they but they miss those times. And it's just uh, hits a lot of people very hard. It's definitely the most poignant song on the album and one of the most poignant songs in his catalog. And I recall the first time it was played in 2012, which was after the death of Clarence and Jake had to play that solo for the first time. You you could feel it. I mean, it, it is a song at the time it was written. It was the goodbye to Steve. But now I I think it stands as something a little bit more important. And while, again, I think some people get tired of hearing it as often perhaps as it's played. That one has a lot more impact for me than certainly Darlington County is one example. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was a pretty popular encore song on the uh, reunion tour, obviously. And for that reason, I think some fans got a little uh, jaded to it, but it's certainly, I think after um, 9-11 on the, on the rising tour, I think it had a different, different impact. I remember seeing someone just bawling their eyes out when he played it at uh, at FedEx Field in 2003. I'm going to guess that they lost someone very close to them, possibly in 9-11. 
Yeah, that that's sad and just it, again a, a tremendously impactful song, and I I do think it means a lot to a lot of people. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Let's move on to I'm Going Down, <laughs> which certainly is not the most poignant of songs. <laughs> I think Bruce himself has joked that, uh, what did he call it, a lost masterpiece? Yeah, he, I remember seeing it at the... Uh... In Philly in, in 2003 at that 811 show where it was like, it was the first time it had been played, I think, uh, since 86. And some of those beautiful homemade signs and he played it and didn't exactly uh, break any barriers there, but it sure was fun. It sure was fun that night. I love it. I totally love it. I'm sorry. Yes, it's a little cheesy. It just, this is just fun rock and roll featuring the E Street Band. And this is one, I I hope he plays it. I love it when he plays it. It doesn't get played anywhere near as often as some of the other tracks off this record, which may influence me in that regard. But I just love it. And, and the stories he told in 84 <laughs> and 85, it, this is just, if, if you can't enjoy this, uh, what is the point? <laughs> That's true. I love those stories. Uh about when you first start going out with someone, everything they do is wonderful. <laughs> I don't care what we do as long as I'm with you. Uh, yeah, he, he really nailed that perfectly in the intros in 84 and 85. And I was going back to the actual the studio recording of it, though, Hal. I, I got to say, I'm not a big fan of that Tex-Mex guitar intro. I would prefer he just break out the electric guitar from the get-go on this one. I don't know. I, I I really like it. I remember that day when I heard it for the first time. And yes, it's it's very simplistic in a manner, but it, I just really enjoy it. Now, what do you now at the time, or I think when they were debating the track listing, that they were it was between this one and Pink Cadillac in this slot. Do you? Uh, it was like they were celebrating sexuality on Pink Cadillac, whereas in this one, it's a little bit less overt. You have any thoughts on that? Well, knowing how history played out, it, it's hard to argue with their choice. Uh, Pink Cadillac, especially for a B-side, and, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about the B-sides, Pink Cadillac really registered. When, when Dancing came out, Pink Cadillac was played a huge amount on the radio in New York. And I, I think as far as the placement on the record, I don't know. This, to me, this record is sort of perfect. So it's hard to me when we're talking about all these various incarnations and should Murder, Inc. Of course, Murder, Inc. should have been released. I mean, we we understand that. It's a classic song itself. But should it have been on this record 
Or should Pink Cadillac have been on here? I, I don't know. It's very hard to say that. And I think Pink Cadillac smolders. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But I'm going down. It's pretty fiery because it's more about a relationship that's on the way out. No? Yes. Whereas I think Pink Cadillac, it's on the way in. Correct. So, yeah. It's- so I, I don't know that I would have made that change. I, everything worked out so <laughs> well for them. It's hard to sit here and go, oh, we would have done this. Now, we did actually do an episode, and we specifically said at the time yes, we when we did our alternate Born in the USA episode that in no way were we implying that the record should have been changed or that it wasn't perfect because history speaks for itself. <laughs> uh, first of all, when you sell a record and, and – 30 million copies or whatever the number is right now, uh, we'd look like idiots to sit here and go, okay, they should have done something else. Uh, that's, uh, that's just a fact. That's and true. the impact that it had on all of our lives, uh, as I've been saying throughout this episode, this is the record. And uh, so I, no, I would not have put Pink Cadillac on. All right. So they made the right decision. I mean, even at the, I mean, had they released Pink Cadillac in this line, I still think it would have sold 30 million copies. I agree. But again, we can't revise history and we can only go with what the album is, not what it could have been. And I just think leave it alone. Okay. Go with the record. And as we're talking about it, people haven't done it in a while. Seriously, especially if you own it on vinyl, which is a kick. <laughs> Put this album on and listen to it from start to finish. Yeah. It's only about 46 minutes. And as I tried to do, try to think back to the first time you heard it, and it, it's 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 pure magic. Yeah. I, there's just there's nothing else to say. Yeah, when it uh, when we celebrated the 25th anniversary of it in 2009, I remember putting it in my car on a on a gorgeous uh, June day, and just cr- I just cranked the mother, <laughs> cranked it loud, and it was just fun uh, driving down the highway listening to it. It was yeah, it held up, it still holds up, as does the next track, which. Probably is, well, would you say Glory Days is is bigger now than Dancing in a Certain Way? Oh, yeah. Or you think Dancing? Definitely. Yeah. I, th- I think uh, I, I may have misspoken earlier when I said the, the main tracks I hear on uh, on like album, on rock radio, Born in the USA and, and, and Bobby Jean. I think it's this one, uh, Glory Days. Hear it way more than Dancing in the Dark. And it's and there's a reason for that. It's it's more more of Bruce's traditional rock sound. Uh, then certainly dancing in the dark and and it's fun everybody remembers this was when this song was popular when bruce was on the stadium tour in 85 and i think there's a lot of associations with it from from that summer and from bruce just on top of the world and, and people just enjoying going to a bunch of stadium shows or just the one they went to and playing it on the radio all the time there's something so purely nostalgic about the track and uh, <laughs> it's written in there when it's i heard in the, into the yeah, song <laughs> yeah just thinking about it i love this song now people get i think some people find it too cheesy or whatever and and i also associate it with the club shows because when i started going to the pony and and some of the other places we went to in the late 80s and early 90s and this was the one e street band song he would generally do in the clubs and there's just something so special about this song to me. And it takes me back to a point in my life. And, and I, I think of that first day and the hundreds, if not thousands of times I listened to it after that first day. And this song is always 
it meant a lot to me. And, and I get there are some people who think it's cheesy and it's, it's overplayed. And I think there are some people in general who just want to be, if something is a hit, they sort of want to <laughs> be the, too, the opposite of that. Yeah, too cool. They want to be too cool for school. But this song, I it, it really this is a an important one for me. Yeah, yes, it is, and it was again another one that he avoided playing f- on the on the reunion tour, and finally did come back on the rising tour, and I and and I think it's a great effect. It kind of alternated with, with Rosalita, and it kind of had a for for a bit there, and I think it had kind of a similar feel about uh, going back to the to the good old days. And again, the stories he told with this on the Born in the USA tour were pretty funny. The daydreaming out in the outfield, just classic stuff. And and especially, we can all relate to that. I mean, uh, I, how many times was I in the outfield and I was not the greatest of athletes? And this is a truly wonderful song. And and, and I think in, in many ways underrated by a lot of the fans, as I was just saying. No, I don't think it's underrated. I think they rate it appropriately. They just don't like it. But and I I relate to it I I because I was a I was a decent pitcher when I was in junior high school and the kind of became a batting practice pitcher in high school but that's the that's a different story so I always wanted to be the the guy who could throw that speedball by you but uh, I think that'll be a revision of history in some in some ways but yeah the the baseball I, theme of it really hit me good and uh, you know you could even see Dwight Gooden in, in the video he's uh, striking yeah. striking somebody out there I love that one oh. I- I remember the day they filmed that video in 1985. It was the height of Springsteen hysteria, and they were in Hoboken at Maxwell's, and it it, it was breaking news. It was, it was <laughs> sure, literally yeah. like, like the president went to a summit with Gorbachev or something. And that's why when I think of that song now, it just takes me back there. So it, just love it. And, <laughs> and I'm going to be very much excited if it it's not going to be played every night i i'm sure but i do hope it makes occasional appearances next year oh i'm sure it will especially if he's going to throw that stadium size house party it's going to show up just like it did in 2003 looking forward to it it'll be cool and of course you know the audience the audience sing-along that's always more fun to me than say hungry heart and dancing in the and sunny day rather let's go dancing and (laughs) A song you probably will see very often, if not nightly, next year. Dancing in the Dark, his biggest hit to date. It will stand as his biggest hit because I highly doubt Bruce is going to have a number one record <laughs> number one single. in his lifetime now. Number yeah, And this went to number two. Yep. Kept out of number one by When Doves Cry. Hey, that's some uh, that's some good competition right there. 84 had some great music, and uh, those two were just Wasn't- at, the, at the top. I forget, and we'll have to look this up. There was also a Duran Duran song that hit number one that year. That also around the same time. Yes, Do you exactly. know which song I'm talking about? Oh, I just I, was it the just, Reflex. Uh, was it the Reflex? I forget. I could. All right. Well, we'll have to look that up. But the song never made it to number one. So the peak of his career is <laughs> this as a number two single. But I'm sure he'll take it. Yes, he the will. video itself set off. I think even more hysteria. I, the day this single arrived on WNEW in New York, as I, I think I was saying a little bit earlier, you can't compare anything now, the way stuff is released. Uh, first of all, as we know, any song that comes out now, you can go listen to in a split second on YouTube or uh, in iTunes or wherever. In 1984, when a song came out, if you missed it on the radio, you had to wait for it to come back up. <laughs> 
That is true. That is true. And I remember that was the one that uh, was the NEW got a got a hold of it early, and they were playing the they were playing it like yeah. on repeat or something. And they uh, they got a cease and desist letter, but by that time the the quote unquote damage was done. I'm, I'm, I kind of doubt that that Bruce and Landau and, and, and CBS Records were too upset about uh, it making headlines that way, but. I am going to guess that was strategically leaked. (laughs) Yes, I'm cynical, but yes, I I know that is likely the case. I know what you're saying. And yes, the Duran Duran song would have been the reflex. Uh, What can you say about Dancing in the Dark? Uh, The story is legendary. The album, (laughs) Bruce had recorded 75, 80 songs. They had spent two years putting everything together. And then at the last minute, Landau, to his credit, doing his job, says to Bruce, you don't have a lead single. And Bruce is not pleased about that. <laughs> I, I, says to him, if you if, if you think that, you go write it. And Bruce did go home. He thought about it. And as he has told the story many times, he sat on his bed with a guitar. And I get up in the morning. No, what do I do? I get up in the evening and the, and the song just poured out of him. The writing on this one is a lot more complex, I think, than we really would look at on the surface, but a lot of what was going on in his life poured out into this song. Again, another version or another instance of some very dark lyrics about someone who was just sick and tired of their own lives. They want to change everything. And then they, he puts it to this incredibly upbeat music with the, with the now legendary synth riff and it works well. It works perfectly. And yeah, (laughs) the rest is history. Ask Courtney Cox about that. It's really right there in the song. Uh, I I think you cited this line earlier. I want to change my clothes, my hair, my face, which is definitely uh, something that uh, teens could relate to at the time. Uh, That's a uh, there, of course, in the teen years, a lot of angst. I think you and I both (laughs) felt that. But it was what he, he was going through. He was looking to reinvent himself. And as we know, three or four months after this, he did reinvent himself because they got this down. They finalized the record. The video came out. People, when Bruce had last been seen in 1981, as you pointed out in the last episode, he did not appear in the Atlantic City video. When Bruce had last been seen, he was a scrawny little guy. And now suddenly he was some kind of Hercules. <laughs> yeah, the physical transformation that he that he that he went through. That, and obviously that was in very much intentional just just to play concerts. I think his line was, you know, you uh jump up and down and scream at the top of your lungs for for 3 hours and see how you feel. So it was uh it worked on many levels, especially the visual one uh where he came out, he he was cut just cut <laughs> in, in an amazing way. And he, that's, that, that was a big part of what happened over, over that year. The lines at the end, I'm sick of sitting around here trying to write this book. This is a guy who's singing this line as he has just recorded like 80 <laughs> songs over two years. He was tired. That doesn't seem to be a coincidence. He was tired, he was tired of writing that book and, and he wanted to, wanted to go dancing. He wanted to find someone. Well, uh, the next line, I need a love reaction. He's sitting alone. He's been working in the studio for all this time. He needed that. He needed to get out on the road and to, and to feel the crowd again. As we know, this song became very symbolic of that. As you point out, Courtney in the video and, and certainly pretty much every night since it was first premiered with a 
a young woman, most of the time, a very infrequently a young man uh, making their way to the stage to to give him his love reaction. Exactly. Exactly. I, I wonder if we're going to see it next year. But uh, of course, I think it became kind of a joke at the end of the last couple of tours where you had he was bringing five, six people even more on stage for the, for the end of the song. It's like, you know, give it a rest now. Give it a rest. Yeah, I I, I actually think that that undercuts the song a little bit. Well, we don't need to talk about that now in conjunction <laughs> with the record. But but go ahead. Well, one more thing I want I want to bring up. And you mentioned the line, I get up in the evening. I think my friend, or our friend, Jonathan Pont, he brought up the fact that Van Halen's jump was actually probably riding the, the top of the charts when he wrote this song and that, was it coincidence or not that that was also the first line of jump? Uh, I don't know if I've ever realized that before. That's pretty crazy what you just pointed out. And what a time it was. 1984 in general with Bruce, Madonna, Michael Jackson. You had Duran Duran. This Prince. is the greatest era. Prince, of course. This is the greatest era of pop music that has ever existed. <laughs> I'm sure. uh, I mean, by far. Yes, it's definitely yeah. It's my favorite year for music. And I mean, unfortunately, I, I, I kind of suspect that you and I are both a little bit biased on this one, but I think there is a huge argument to be made for it. Well, just in terms of pure pop hits, now yes, there's yes. other years in rock history, of course, when Zeppelin was playing. But when you look at the pop charts from these years, it's 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 staggering, and I don't think it'll ever be duplicated. And you know, maybe that makes me people are like, "Well, you're old," and uh, <laughs> although I like to think I'm not that old. I do listen to a lot of contemporary music. I just don't see this happening again. Uh, everything is too fragmented yeah, now. Yeah. See, back in 1984-85, the world was nowhere near as fragmented. People listened to Michael Jackson was listened to by just everyone. It didn't matter how old you were or where you grew up. Everyone in my high school was listening to Michael Jackson and everyone was listening to this record. And it just doesn't seem to be the same today with that sort of universality, just because there's so many choices and everything is so much easier to access. Oh, I, to I totally agree with you. I even thought that back at the time in um, that, like by late 85, even to early 86, I thought things were getting a little bit too fragmented, but it's nothing compared to what we have now. I mean, you can, you can basically have an entire playlist on YouTube just for yourself. And it's just amazing that, at that time in 1984 that you, know, you had you had half a dozen albums that just everybody had and you would hear them on the yes. radio no matter what station whether it was top 40 whether it was rock whether it was adult contemporary you know even a little bit of uh, i guess you didn't hear bruce on any on any r&b channels but you certainly had madonna on there as well as obviously michael jackson and prince yeah it's in a way it's too bad but let's not get sidetracked into that and we've got one more <laughs> track here my hometown, which if you listen to Chuck Plotkin, he swears that he was a proponent that the album needed to start with Born in USA and end with My Hometown. It is an interesting choice to end the record. It was certainly an interesting choice to be the final single. But this one fits in really quite well with the body of work that had come from Nebraska that's reflected in songs like Factory. This is one in a line of Springsteen songs that is about freehold and you understand exactly where it's coming from. Yes. And I think it, it's kind of, whereas Born in the USA, the song was kind of about the responsibility that 
the, the narrator felt that the country had to him. My hometown is where the response, the narrator feels responsibility he has to his hometown and that we're all part of it. And as he said on, on the tour, it takes everybody to, to make your, to make your hometown a better place to be. And so in that way, I, I think it works quite well. I've always wanted to replace it with this hard land, but I think, I don't think that would work. I think my hometown's a perfect closer. And I, I even think it as a single, I think they were trying to make a little bit of a statement follow up with with the song with the single born in the usa by with my hometown for for those reasons i I just said yeah i wouldn't change it either and the one thing that's funny is if he had known that years later he would be playing this album in sequence which probably never occurred to him (laughs) certainly i think in 1984 perhaps there would have been a better choice for the closer than My Hometown, because I always thought it was weird when he did the album in sequence that My Hometown was sort of a downer to complete that with. But that has nothing to do with the album itself. And and I think it does work extremely well in terms of paying off the themes of this record, of other records, as I just said, of, of course, I think most specifically what we had heard in Mansion on the Hill in my father's house off Nebraska and it, it, it's a different tale because he's telling it sort of, it's not his tale. Uh, in the two songs I just mentioned, that is Bruce's story. This one is more a story of the area. Do you agree? Yes, yes, I do. He's not just talking about his experiences, but about the home, about his, what happened in, the, in his hometown. The race fight, I guess you can call it, and certainly the factory is getting, getting shut down. I guess that's part of his father's story, which you could say is part of his story, but... Uh, Foreman says the jobs are going, boys, and they ain't coming back. That's his that's his father's story or his father's contemporaries. I think you're right, and that, and that's a good point. And and if we just think about the bookends of this record, it sort of does capture the American experience at the time, and that's probably why it was appropriate to start with Born in the USA, the story of a Vietnam vet who'd come home and been mistreated, and end with the tale of Freehold where the trouble that had occurred and trying to come out of that and emerge freehold into a better place. And I think the country as a whole into a better place. Exactly. And I, you know, and I wonder, had this album been released in 82, would it have had the same effect? And you can make the argument that it it may not have. I think by 84, I think the economy had turned around and people were feeling better about the country. So I think it almost like, hit the sweet spot of, of what this country uh, was looking for. And not, not a surprise. It was on everyone's shelf by the end of the year. No, definitely not a surprise at all. This is just, it's an amazing piece of work and I'm glad we went through it. And I'm not sure if there's anything else to say (laughs) about it right now. We are going to come back to the outtakes. So let me just wrap up by saying none, but the brave is a presentation of bull market entertainment We're on Evergreen Podcasts. If you wish to reach out to us, check us out on our website, nonebutthebravepodcast.com, or on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? 
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.